You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Hall Martin, founder of Tan Capital. And in this episode, he will talk about what Tan Capital is, how he has managed to spawn out three angel networks in Texas, and what does it even mean to spin out an angel network. And at the end of the episode, we're going to touch on some legal details of fundraising, and more specifically, when does it make sense to start a C corporation versus an LLC, and when does it actually make sense to start an LLC and then convert it to the C corporation. So Martin, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Tank Capital. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, my background is I um, actually went to Austin and worked for a high-tech company for about uh, 20 years and they went IPO. So I started doing angel investing after that. And we had an angel network in Austin back in the 95 to 2000 era. I went and joined the group because I wanted to learn how to do angel investing and Uh, I found that the best way to do that is to work with other investors, share the deal flow and the due diligence. So I joined the group and invested in a deal and then lost all my money and started to realize, well, this is not (laughs) as easy as it looks. It takes a lot more skill. And that group lasted for about six years. It ran from 95 to 2001. They were tied to the dot-com world. And when that went away, they went away with it. We didn't have an angel network for several years. And then in 2006, the city did a restart and they called it the Central Texas Angel Network here in Austin. So I signed up as the first member. And when you do that, you're the first member in the group. You're automatically on the board in charge of membership. It's a great honor, no pay, but it's a great honor to go and help recruit people And so I did that. I recruited about 50 members into the group. I was always an early stage guy. I always wanted to help early stage companies as I thought innovation and entrepreneurship were really the answers to most most of uh, society's problems. And so I always fostered that. And after a couple of months of uh, recruiting, I lost our director. So I became the director and I led it for the first two years, which we got a 33x return from that 5 million invested by those 50 investors. So it was a great uh, win for the group and really propelled it onward. And then I got a call from my undergraduate university, Baylor, and they wanted an angel network out of the alumni association. And when you do an angel network out of a university, the dynamics are a little bit different. It's less about making money and more about student experience and job placement and giving back to the university. So I helped them start that group. And I'm still a member to that group till this day and have had a great time with it, uh, even though it's a little bit of a different game there. A lot more mentorship goes into that. And then I helped start an angel group in a county north of Austin called Williamson County, called the Wilco Angel Network. And we uh, did deal flow there for many years as well. So I ended up starting three angel networks. And about 2009, I I was thinking about my second career. I've been at that that company for about 20 years, 24 years, as a matter of fact, and thought, well, what was the happiest time I had in the company? And the happiest time was back when it was just starting. It was in the early days. I said, well, I want to get back to the early stage world. How do I do that? And I found I was having more fun with the angel investing than I was with the the work. And so I uh, left the company and started my own firm called Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we were helping with capital formation and helping startups find that in the early days and did that for several years until we 
kept growing our investor network, which were originally Texas Angels, and then they were Angels across the country. And then from 2010 to 2015, I went to the Bay Area and to New York to find a, a venture capital, because that's where most of them were located. And then 2016, they had a whole bunch of family offices come into my network because they wanted to go direct. And by 2017, I started getting calls from outside of Texas wanting access to our investor network. So we changed the name from Texas Entrepreneurs Network to 10 Capital. That's what 10 stands for and started working around the country. And at heart, we were doing investor relations and introductions. I decided not to be a broker because I was going to lose a substantial part of my network many VC funds, most angel groups don't let brokers in the deal. So went, had to go uh, in another direction. And so we help startups uh, find investors. We help angel groups find members and we help VC funds find limited partners. And so we're just doing connections and introductions mm -hmm. to do that. Right. So let's, let's talk a little bit more details about, you know, what does it mean to spin out the network, the angel network? You've touched onto it quite a bit in your introduction, but Technically speaking, what is an angel network? It's is it a company? Is it formed as an LLC, as a C corporation? How is it legally formed? Let's start with that and then move on in that direction. So most uh, angel groups back when I started would form a, a not-for-profit organization. And that just meant you were going to be either a, 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 a not-for-profit uh, charity or you were going to be a trade organization. Uh, but um, a, you then had to go file with the IRS to get a true nonprofit status. And if you're doing any investment inside the group, then you really can't do that. You really had to file an LLC. So most angel groups were really just LLCs and you have to pay taxes on the, on the business of which there, it's not a big thing as well. Since then, a lot of angel groups have decided to separate out the investment. So the core leadership of the group that runs it, uh, they, they just do all the investment outside of it, not inside of it. And they just treat it more like a trade association. And so many are able to get, you know, use an LLC or a not-for-profit LLC in order to get the nonprofit status going forward. And so you typically don't have a C corporation. Uh, the money is mostly in the investments that the members make, not in the organization itself. Sometimes they'll have a fund where you just create a separate LLC for the fund to take care of that. Gotcha. Understood. So for investors, it's quite obvious what you get. For founders, it's quite obvious what you get, which is, you know, more exposure to more investors. Um, what about the people who lead it? I'm just wondering, you know, what's their purpose of doing it if sometimes or in most cases they don't get a management fee or anything, uh, any kind of incentive? So what makes them deal with all this stuff, which is a lot of organizational stuff? So most angel groups are, are led by people that have a passion for the early stage or for the startup. In some cases, they really don't need the, uh, uh, the salary that goes with it, although nobody likes to work for free. Uh, so they do it for the passion of it for the most part. You don't get super rich running uh, angel networks from a management point of view, because it's basically a networking group. Uh, and that's what uh, one reason a lot of people joined is they wanted to expand their network. And that's a great way to meet a lot of people in a short amount of time, both startups and investors is to lead an angel network and found many people would come on and take the role, especially program directors and deal flow directors, because it's, it's in a high traffic area mm -hmm. and you, you build your network that goes with it. And from there you jump to maybe a, your own other your own business doing something that just requires you to know know people in the community 
Right. That's definitely one way to do it. Another way to do it is run a podcast about fundraising for <laughs> three years. <laughs> so <laughs> it's your call, people. Um, but yeah, that's, that sounds quite interesting. So uh, eventually it has transformed into something that you call the TAN Capital Network. And on our pre-interview call, you have told me quite a bit about it. And I would like to focus on a few major things here, one of which is the fact that you are not a broker-dealer. Um, because a lot of VCs, as you said, are not really allowed to have broker dealers involved in their deals for understandable reasons. Um, can you tell a little bit more to the founders listening to this? Uh, what does it mean to be a broker dealer or not to be a broker dealer? What kind of limitations do you have now that you are not a registered broker dealer? All right. So the SEC has decided to, or the FINRA group inside SEC, has decided to anoint certain people with the ability to go and actually do transactions, which is private stock sales, and but they have to apply certain compliance to it. You have to make certain checks before you allow the transaction to go through. And if you do that, well, then you can actually take a fee that goes with it. And you have to go through audits every year. They, uh, the government wants to check your transactions to make sure you're doing it correctly. They want to check to see that you're doing it in a in within compliance requirements that they have. And it's people that have you know, gained a license to actually do these transactions and uh, startups go to them because they wanna find funding or get help with it. And so they pay the broker a fee. Typically there's a little bit upfront and then there's a success fee on the back end, some percent, five, 10% that they pay uh, the funds they raise that came through the broker is what they do. And like I say, you know, VC funds don't have the ability to take deals that go through them because they have clauses in their fund documents that basically say uh, you can't pay anybody else anything to find the deals because we're, we're paying you to go find the deals. And so you can't outsource that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why brokers can't be used for, by VC funds, but basically right. they're people that uh, provide the compliance work and they can transact those deals. Gotcha. Perfect. And um, so basically for founders, the only difference is that there is no such thing as a success fee unless the company is a registered broker, correct? That's right. You know, you have gotcha. to be a broker dealer to charge a success fee. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a pretty sticky wicket to get around. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if you partner with a firm that has a broker dealer, you must be yourself a compliant and that requires taking yep. several uh, compliance tests. You have to have certain proficiencies and pass certain exams in order to do so as well. A personal recommendation here, don't deal with uh, registered broker dealers. It's not worth it. <laughs> in most cases, it is not. Um, but in your case, uh, Martin, you are not one. So you charge just a fixed fee per month. And on our pre-interview call, you have mentioned that's $2,000 per month. For our listeners out there, when does it make sense to reach out to someone like yourself and you know ask for support in uh, uh, their fundraising? So whenever you're fundraising, you should always leverage your network first. You always want to make sure that your group is supporting you and you put money in and then you start drawing the circle wider. At some point, you'll run out of network. And when you do, that's when you call us. And that's how we went national as I was getting calls from Seattle, Chicago, and other places saying, hey, I've talked to everybody in my city. I've run out of investors. I need more, more investors. And that's when you come to us is that we'll help you uh, find more investors. I do think that most startups should have a 
national perspective on their fundraise from day one. I think the days of just raising money from your local group only is really not possible because you know your investors locally are looking nationally as well for the best deal, not just the best local deal. And so you have to start thinking, where am I going to find more investors? And we can help help with that part of it is to get you connected to more uh, accredited investors. Right. Uh, so my major concern with companies like Tank Capital or any companies, to be fair, that's promised to connect them or founders with investors for a fee is that, you know, they're, they're biased, obviously, because it's their customer and it's the customer who pays rather than the VCs. Is there a problem with that? Or do you think that VCs don't really care much about where that introduction is coming from? Well, the way I look at it is the, uh, the company's paying a fee to get access to the investors because the alternative is they go to their network and they get a friend of a friend to make an introduction. And that, that's, that's possible to a certain extent, but eventually uh, it, it can wear you down to try to leverage that much. And again, your network does come to an end at some point. The VC or the angel on the other side of that table, their job is to do the diligence and actually put the money in. So they're, they're not getting uh, off free here. They're, there is still work to be done. So we're just trying to take some of the cost out of it and try to make put some efficiency into the process of capital formation and at a price that is more startup friendly. There are many, many groups that will charge very, very high fees, but we don't think that you, you really need to charge those fees in order to make it work. Right. Absolutely. Debatable subject. Not going to go into this one because we don't have enough time, but let's talk about when it makes sense for... Um, for a start founder to reach out to someone like yourself, as you mentioned, you know, one of the reasons is you run out of investors in your city. As a person who lives in San Francisco, I cannot imagine that, but <laughs> to be fair, yeah, there are obviously cities like that, you know, smaller than San Francisco and less populated with investors. But now that everything is online, do you think it is still possible to run out of investors because you don't, you don't care where they are in the United States. You can reach out to anyone and, I've interviewed hundreds of investors during the pandemic and none of them seem to care where the founder is actually from. I think the pandemic certainly put everything online and actually accelerated the move to a national perspective, like I was talking about a moment ago. One of the challenges that you have to realize is that, you know, when I started the CTAN group in Austin back in 2006, they were generalists. They would basically look at any deal that was just in their backyard. Uh, we would look at a gaming deal, turn around, look at a biotech, and then turn around, look at an IT SaaS deal all in one evening. But as time has gone, gone forward, many of those groups are becoming more specialized. And you'll see that with VCs as well. Mm -hmm. What they start to look for becomes very uh, specific and very narrow. And that's why they can't just look locally. They have to look nationally. And so because it's such a long tail there, you have to really look nationally for your, the right investor that matches your deal. And one of the things we do with startups is one reason why they come to us is we, we do what's called repositioning. Take your deal and I found you can take any deal and you can position it for three, four, five, six different kinds of investors. If it's a SaaS deal, well, there are certain SaaS metrics that SaaS investors look for. Let's put that on the front and position it. If it's an ed tech deal where well, there's certain uh, things that they look for, let's put that up there and let's position it for that. And if it mm -hmm. has an 
impact in there, well, then you can position it yet a third way. And it's important to do with positioning because you have to think about your audience, in this case, the investors, what are they looking for, and make yourself relevant to them. And in many cases, you can make yourself relevant to many, many more groups if you think along the lines of not just one size fits all, but I'm going to make this specific to each investor group that I go to. And like I say, we have six, seven positionings we do for any, any deal that comes to us. And, and we also help them with their documents. Many of them uh, actually need a little bit more help on the documents itself uh, and, and pitching as well. They have what I call the curse of knowledge, which is they, they're so close to it that they, they assume too many things. And so I'll, I'll, leave, I'll watch a, a pitch and I'll have to go back and say, well, that's great, but what do you do? Uh, so you have to go through and make right. sure that you're, ma you're making those things clear. And we help a lot of people in that direction as well. Right. Yeah. And it is quite important, especially for founders who don't have much experience fundraising. That is definitely where advisors and uh, companies like uh, Tank Capital Network can help quite a bit. Um, so let's talk about some legal stuff, which I have promised we're going to cover at the end of this mm. episode or closer to the end of this episode, which is um, when to start an LLC and then convert it to a C corporation. I work for First Base, which is a startup out of Y Combinator, which specializes in incorporating companies in the US. So I've seen quite a few of those cases where founders reach out to us and ask us to convert an LLC that we have created earlier and convert it into C Corporation because they have found an investor. You, Martin, said that it sometimes might make sense to do that on purpose, even if you know that in the future you might be raising capital. Can you elaborate a little bit on that idea? Why do you think it makes sense to do that? I find that many, many startups, even successful serial founders are going through several iterations on a business. They'll start a business and it doesn't work. And so they, they quickly drop it and they go to the next one. And so it, it can be kind of expensive to start with a Delaware C on every, every single idea you have. It's best to start with something simpler like an LLC. Uh, there's cost is lower, it's easier to put together, it's a couple hundred dollars with the Secretary of State, so it's easier to spin up and have a legal entity. You do have to have an entity in order to uh, raise funding, open a bank account, and do a lot of the basic things that go on. But as you go forward and you start to move to you know, venture capital funding, at that point, they're going to want a Delaware C. And when, if and when you get to that stage, well, that's when you convert from an LLC to a Delaware C. It's very easy to go from an LLC to a C corporation. It's very hard to go from a C corporation back to an LLC. And my role is when there's an investor there ready to invest in your business and pay for the conversion, well, that's when we do it. And so you're always open to the investor saying, I'm an LLC, but I'm happy to move to a C corporation upon uh, funding. We'll be glad to do that. And the other issue is the VCs, all of their documents are based on C corporations and they're, they're not changing it for you. So if you do get venture capital funding coming in, you will be converting. Uh, but that's very standard. There's a lot of benefits that come with that as well. So that's why we wanted to start with LLC is that not every deal or every business you start, even if you're successful, is going to be the one you want to carry forward. And as LLC is just a lot uh, lighter and cheaper in order to do that experimentation. Right. That is actually a good point. My last recommendation is don't start with a legal entity at all, unless you start seeing some profits coming in or you just need to do it for tax purposes. Sure thing, go for it. Otherwise, it's a hassle, quite frequently not worth it because as Mario, you said, 
most ideas need to be revised numerous times. Some of them are just not going to work in any shape or form, and you just have to close the company. So it doesn't really make sense to open and close, open and close, open and close. Might as well not open at all until you think that it is viable. So um, let's go on to the next subject, which I really, really wanted to cover in this episode, which you have mentioned on our pre-interview call, which is um, the rule of four for your valuation strategy. Can you tell us a little more about that rule? What does it mean and how you think founders should evaluate their startups? Sure. So I came up with the idea of a rule of four. It's been around for a while, but I found that many, many startups struggle with valuation. How should I value my business? And, you know, the wrong answer is to think about how much you want to own at the end of the process and then try to figure out how to make your business worth that. And I think the right answer is to articulate all the values that are in the business today. And so I came up with the idea of that for every one of these four things, give yourself $1 million of valuation if you have it fully installed. And that's sales, that's team, uh, that's product, and that's intellectual property, those four things. So if my sales is completely installed, everything's working, I got recurring revenue, I got all the, all, everything's clicking, give myself a million dollars. If on the other hand, I have a few beta sales and so forth, well, maybe I give myself $300,000, you know, something less. And then if the team, everybody's in place, everybody's working, a million dollars. Well, maybe I only have half the team in place, but I'm still looking for the other half, well, I'll give myself 500,000. And then you apply that to the product, is it shipping? Is it working a million? If it's uh, not not fully there, you know, let's, let's make it less. And same thing for intellectual property. If I've got been awarded the patents and everything's in place, a million dollars. If I have three provisionals filed, well, let's give myself two hundred thousand for that. And the idea is you're actually looking at the values in the business and putting a price tag on it, and then you add them up. And the most you can come out with is about four million dollars. And for early stage companies, that that's where most businesses really are. There are some that are on the unicorn track, and they're they're going to be trying to do a high velocity move there. Maybe. May a different game there. But when you go to an investor, no matter what number the startup puts out there for evaluation, the investor is going to push back and they're going to ask, how did you get to that? And the, the winning answer is the one that can go through and clearly articulate the values that are in the business and come up with a number that the investor would say, yeah, that's, that's probably how much it's going to be worth. And you, you can get to uh, negotiation faster with that. And it's the back of the envelope one. You can also find comps and other things that go on, but those things can be hard to find and, and hard to get agreement upon. What's in the business today is, is one of the best things to use to uh, get alignment with the investor. Mm-hmm. Right. That's very true. And again, most early stage rounds are not priced. You just need a valuation to establish a uh, valuation cap, which is not always super important. So the rule definitely works. I love that rule. Probably disagree with the patent part, but that's a discussion for a different time. Uh, one more question on that rule of uh, four in terms of valuation. When you say that the whole team is in place or half of the team is in place, what qualifies as the full team being in place? Well, at the very early stage, you know, there's a com- you need a complete team at all times in running a business. And at the very early stage, there's somebody building it and somebody selling it. There's two people. As you start to grow and get revenue, it goes to three people as a complete team. And we're talking about the top level team, the C-level people in the business. And so that's what you're looking for. If I've got uh, a founder, but I don't have the co-founder yet, I've got half a team in my mind. You really need somebody mm-hmm. that's doing both sides of it. And even if you're outsourcing uh, the technology, 
technology, someone in the team still needs to own that process. And that's where they go wrong so many times is I'll just outsource it. Well, you really can't outsource the management of that. That still has to be on your core team. And if you haven't hired that person, well, then that that's value that's not there. If you have hired it, well, that's value that you should be getting credit for because that's a very important role. And so I look for a complete team, two people in the very early stages to uh, launch these businesses because it's just a tremendous amount of work. And uh, even for two people, it's a tremendous amount. So you have yeah. to have you know the right people there 100 definitely agree with you on this one and on this agreeable note let's move on to the very last question of today's episode which is a call to action so martin <laughs> after this episode is over after the last words are said what do you want the listener to do uh, if you're a startup founder and you want to raise funding, go to 10capital.group.group and uh, look us up and see if we're a good fit. If you run out of uh, network, uh, let's get a call going and glad to talk with you about it. If you're a, a startup investor and you're looking for deal flow or you are looking for members for your group as an angel group or limited partners for your fund, go to the same place, 10capital.group. There's a place for investors. And we'll be glad to help you find more people for your group itself. So we call it funding as a service, and it's uh, helping all elements of the ecosystem, not just one. The startup, the angel group leader, and the VC fund manager, we help uh, at every stage of the way. Looking forward to seeing you on our website. Wait, you said VC fund manager, so you help VCs fundraise as well? Well, we help them find limited partners and primarily we're raising funding from family offices. Uh, and so many funds now are sub $100 million funds. So yeah. they really aren't raising from pensions in that, that category. They definitely are not. <laughs> and they're looking for you know more limited partners. And so uh, there are many, many family offices that uh, want to be in the funds. There, Like I said before, there was a move to get away from uh, fund fees and go direct. Mm -hmm. And I think some family offices are successful at that. I found if the, the area is clear and you can find deal flow and you understand the space, well, then you can invest directly. But there are many spaces that are not that clear. Blockchain is a good example of that today. Uh, and you can't find uh, good deals or value them so very well. And there it makes sense to go through a fund and be a part of a larger group and get the diversification benefits that come from that. 100%. And quite frequently, family offices cannot spend their entire time working on that. So yes, investing in funds does make sense for them quite frequently. That is awesome for 2% of the investors listening. Bear in mind for Tan Capital Network, uh, if you're looking for more LPs, definitely check them out. I'm going to make sure to leave a link in the description of this episode. Same thing goes to the rest, 97% of the founders and 1% is random people. <laughs> um, but I'll leave all the links in the description of this episode. And of course, there's going to be a shameless plugin of our course, which is focused on same thing as Tan Capital Network, but you have to self-educate yourself through reading through all our guidelines. And yeah, that's going to be my call to action. Check out the description of this episode. A bunch of links are going to be in there. And as usually, have a good day.